to Building Stronger Creatives, a fitness podcast for musicians, artists, nerds, and former misfits. I'm a former out-of-shape professional musician turned personal trainer and nutrition coach to hundreds of clients, and I'll give you no-nonsense information about what it really takes to get and stay fit within the context of a creative life. Here, you'll find practical advice on strength and endurance training, sane and simple nutrition, habit building, and time management tools to help you make lifestyle changes that actually stick. Most fitness coaches have no clue what it really means to be a creative, whether you're a professional or a passionate hobbyist. I'm different. I've been where you are, and I share your values. Let me show you how you can use the gym to build a kick-ass creative life. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Building Stronger Creatives. I'm very excited because today I have another guest episode for you, um, and I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm not sure exactly what direction it's going to go, but I know that um, Hannah and I are going to talk about some stuff that I'm personally really interested in, and I hope that it'll be a conversation that is important for musicians and maybe isn't happening on the scale that it should. At least thinking back to my own experience being a musician and being in music school, I wish that a lot of the things that Hannah's doing in her work were things that I had been exposed to back in the day. Um, so before I let her introduce herself, um, I met Hannah briefly this summer. Um, Hannah and her business partner, Madeline, were in Chicago presenting at um, the PAMA conference, which is the, I'm blanking. Performing Arts Medicine Association. Yes, so a very cool um, <laughs> collaborative organization that involves um, medical professionals and researchers in a variety of like health and wellness fields, as well as musicians. So um, I'll let her tell you a little bit more about what she does in a second, but I really appreciate seeing people that are bridging the gap between um, different wellness information, whether that's fitness, nutrition, yoga, other stuff like that, and the musicians who really need it to perform well and feel good on a daily basis. So Hannah, um, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you. And I would love to hear you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, it's I'm honored to be asked and it's just a delight to sit down with you again. Um, so this is really fun. It's like the best way to start my week. Um, I'm Hannah. Uh, if I wanna get technical, you can call me Dr. Murray, but I'm not a medical doctor. Um, I'm the co-founder and co-host of the Corsinor platform and podcast. And Corsinor is a platform dedicated to the health and wellness of all musicians. Um, and we really focus on like three-dimensionalizing what, what it means to have a music education and really taking care of the musician beyond the music. So it's really about ensuring that each individual has the tools they need to be as successful as possible. Um, and at the beginning, that was really founded in this look to research and this look to what the studies were saying and, you know, really analytical information. And it's definitely broadened out into um, different types of just uh, managing your own energy and um, finding tools and resources to help your mindset, which might not be so academic. So that's that that's my my big project um i'm also i live in los angeles and i am a music educator out here and i do a lot of freelance work uh performing throughout the city and you play the violin correct i play yes. the violin yes <laughs> <laughs> sorry no, it's, it's, uh, i love and i have admired once i got to know you like the various different things you have your fingers and i think it's very cool so I'd love to kick this off expanding on what you said. So I think back to when I was in music school and I went to a great music school and I, in a lot of ways, I got a really good music education, but there were a lot of things that in retrospect, I wish that I had learned. One example would be the common joke of like, how do I pay my taxes and manage my finances as a freelancer, which is just through being a fitness freelancer as it is being a musician. But I want to think of it more bigger picture. And so you you are a music educator and you have been for a long time. And I know you're also working with other music educators to sort of improve the scope of the curriculum. So what do you think are some of the things that we should be teaching more in music education and we really aren't? So one of the big ones for myself is anatomy. It's amazing to me that we use our bodies in such an intricate way. And it's kind of guesswork as to how to innervate some of these very 
intricate patterns we do. I'm I'm like staring at my hand now because the hand is such a great example of this that when a teacher is trying to explain how to do a complex finger pattern, it's really luck or a lot of guesswork about how that can actually get done. And if you can actually start that conversation from an anatomical perspective, it solves a lot of the mystery and makes a lot of what we do way more efficient in how you teach it and how you do it. So anatomy for me is one of the big ones we should all be learning. I've had countless conversations with physical therapists (laughs) who are like desperate that musicians include physical training, strength training, movement, any anything that you really brings you joy but moves your body in a way beyond the instrument that you should include that as part of your practice it really is you you are training the body on so many levels so i think that's another one for me that should be ingrained in some way and then i have definitely felt the pitfalls of poor nutrition in times of extreme stress I don't know about you, but I've definitely tried to get on stage fueled only by coffee. And that was not my best. <laughs> and But it took me a long time to really understand what fueling myself for a stressful event or fueling myself for kind of the, the mental endurance of a performance really looked like. And it goes beyond just eating a banana before you get on stage, you know? So those are kind of the three things for me that are crucial. Finances would be an amazing conversation. That one definitely, that was a shocker when I started filing my own taxes and I was like, what, what does this all mean? But this holistic approach, really, really understanding that these other components actually fuel your music making. They don't detract from it. Yeah. So important. And I agree with everything that you said. For me, the first thing, if anyone's familiar with my story, that happened to me personally was the physical transformation where I uh, was struggling with obesity and all of the complications that came along with that. And when I started exercising and when I changed the way that I eat, my energy level, for example, went through the roof. I no longer had some of the aches and pains that I used to have playing my trombone. And along the way, I sort of learned about anatomy myself. And I agree with you that when I became more connected to my body, it improved my outcomes playing or it it made it, it gave me a simpler way to think about things, something that was a little bit different than what I was learning in school. And it just made it a lot easier to solve problems. I, I think too, that at least some of the stuff that I was exposed to in terms of anatomy in the body from musicians wasn't correct. Like one example. (laughs) Also true. (laughs) One example that I'll give you is I, was told a lot to do cardio because uh, as a wind player, you're breathing and because you're doing cardio, you're breathing heavy, that somehow there would be some sort of a correlation that totally like glosses over what's actually going on when you're doing cardio training and the type of breathing that you're doing to play a brass instrument, at least. I don't know about woodwinds. I can't really speak to that, but it's not really a a good comparison versus doing more strength training. There is a little bit more of a, a carryover. Now, granted, I am a big proponent of cardio training, but I'm just using that as an example of something that kind of missed the mark and didn't really encompass the whole picture. I'm curious, like in your work, both with Corsinor and and with your own students or whatever, do you have a lot of people that put up a lot of resistance to the idea of doing more exercise? And yeah, what do you do about that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So I have a private studio here in, well, it's, you know, I'm in LA, but actually I have students kind of all over the country. And about a year and a half ago, I mandated as part of my studio offerings that they came to a weekly movement class. And I have students, I think my youngest right now is 10. And my oldest, I teach into college. So my oldest is 21 ish. And they the eye rolls I got at the beginning of saying you're going to come to a weekly movement class. And you know, we're going to talk about anatomy, we're going to look at models. So you understand how this body comes together. You can bring your problems to class. You can bring your parents to class. You can do whatever you want. Oh, I hate this. This is so boring. This is so blah, blah, blah. Well, three months later, they were like, oh, I was doing my youth orchestra audition. And I remember that breathing exercise you told me. And I felt so much more calm. And I got a really good chair. Or, oh, that that stretch you showed me for my shoulders. I showed that to my mom. And now the two of us do it every morning. 
or, you know, it's like all of these little anecdotal stories where I really had to force them to do it. I didn't give them the choice. It was like, you're in my studio. This is what happens. And they were a couple of them at the beginning. I lost a couple of students who just weren't interested, but the ones who stayed like they're showing their friends at school now exercises. If they're like, oh, we had like tech rehearsal for the theater thing. And we all sat in the pit and everybody was really sore. And I showed all my friends those, those exercises we do in class. That's where I start to see like, that's the change, you know, that's the excitement. But I think if I had given all my students the option, they wouldn't have taken it. <laughs> which is unfortunate to me because I had to, I had to dictate that we were going to be healthy and well as a studio. And then I saw change. Yeah. That's a really, I mean, I think it's really cool. I can understand why some of your students, and in fact, if I was one of your students back in my early life, I might've not liked that idea. It's, it's similar when I work with a client, it's great to get somebody some type of an early win or even a small win, like one stretch or one breathing exercise that makes them feel better. And that can open the door and make them more willing to do other stuff. I'm curious, like, how do you foresee some of this stuff? So let, let's just use two examples, anatomy and some type of physical training. It doesn't have to be strength training. It could be a yoga practice. It could be cardio, whatever, endurance training. I know you've personally done a lot of endurance training in the past as well. How do you foresee like a redesigned conservatory curriculum that might make more space for this type of stuff? So I wrote my dissertation about using yoga to enhance violin playing. Um, and I was super inspired by the story of Yehudi Menuhin and his relationship with the yoga guru, BKS Iyengar, because Menuhin was a, for anybody who doesn't know, he was a child prodigy who really hit an impasse in his career. Uh, I would say probably late 20s, early 30s, and struggled for years to figure it out. And yoga was the thing that really helped him do this. And so the more research I got, you know, so obsessed with this story and this relationship. And I was like, I'm going to start a school where, where all the students have to do yoga in the morning and like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I actually found out when Menuhin started the Menuhin School in the UK, that was what they did. Every student woke up and had, they had yoga every morning. They actually, it was such a hippy dippy little place to begin with. They had to the farm their own little plots of land and like grow vegetables. And they had a very Ayurvedic diet that they had in the school. It was very before its time. Unfortunately, I believe most of that has been removed from that institution but it was basically exactly what I had a dream of creating that, that it was like this beautiful space full of fresh air and open spaces where things were just without you thinking about them they were just part of your day so in in terms of a music education as well as your theory classes you were also in a movement class and maybe every year you kind of changed your curriculum so that you know as a first year you were in yoga and the second year you were in more nutrition and strength and it kind of evolved and, and built on itself yeah I like that I could totally envision a basic anatomy class as part of a curriculum I don't know some of my classmates or myself might have struggled in such a class but I could see where that would fit in really well and I like the idea of having group movement practices that are encouraged I know one thing I did appreciate when I was in school, so my main professor is Michael Mulcahy, and he is a big, like, lifelong swimmer, and um, he's Australian, likes to be outside, doing outside activities, and every week when we had studio class, he would, uh, at least when I was in school, he would go around and make everybody in the studio say what they had done to exercise. Of course, some people were not thrilled about this. <laughs> I remember one kid, one time he answered the question he said that he lived in a third floor walk up so that was what his exercise was um, <laughs> that's yeah, fair that's fair he laughed a little bit but in the years that i was there in my studio in particular there were four or five other people not including myself who hadn't been exercising or had had some health related issues that they could change through lifestyle interventions and they did make those changes and i think that having it come from the top 
probably had at least something to do with it as as well as other people in the studio working out and playing softball together and doing all of these other things I think that the community and the culture of it really helps because if no one's doing it and if everybody is only obsessed with practicing and studying or whatever and there's no time and space for it I feel like it's a lot less likely to happen yeah definitely and I've noticed that with my own students coming to classes like it's it's really kind of become a social hour and social like we laugh with each other somebody you know is in gymnastics class so one day they get to they get to host the the stretches and the exercises we do we laugh at like I'm terrible at balancing on one leg so everybody laughs at the teacher you know it becomes like this communal we're not judging each other on our instruments where we're in like a really safe place where it's okay to be bad at something as long as you show up to do it I love so that. yeah so the other thing that you mentioned was sort of an emphasis on um, like psychological side of performance. So for lack of a better word, like performance psychology, this is something that I also wish that I had in school because something that I struggled with, this is turning into just me talking about my own, my own struggles, but I know that a lot of people in music school went through the same thing. So I really struggled with performance anxiety and the older I got, the worse it got. Uh, it felt like every audition was the end of the world, super important. And I felt like I didn't have a lot of context or support on how to A, calm myself mentally so that I could perform in a good state and B, like move past it instead of ruminating and dwelling and making it out to be the end of the world, which then of course affects subsequent performances and auditions. So how do you approach those type of challenges if you notice them in your students or bigger picture what do you think we should be doing as a music community to like support people that struggle with that issue this is going to feel very off topic but i totally resonate with everything you said and and all the way through my professional life i really struggled with performance anxiety and this internal judgment of myself in the moment of performing which i think is really tricky for us because in the practice room this analysis mind is very important for improvement and understanding how to grow but then we take that brain on stage with us and we forget to let go of the analytical part and it it all just kind of it's like a big it just snowballs and it gets really out of control and this is this is where it's going to seem so unrelated during covid 2020, I started playing music for animals and I would go to rescue barns with my friend who's actually an energy healer. Um, and when she first asked me to do this, I was like, I I'm obsessed with horses. So I'll do, I'll literally do anything to be around horses. She was like, Oh, you should come play for the horses at this barn. And I was like, okay, great. So I, I put together a recital program. I brought my music stand. I I like went through the motions of getting on stage for humans. I was nervous and I got to the barn and I realized these horses do not care. Like they are not impressed by your interpretation of Bach. They don't care about your virtuosic bow technique. Like they're not there for that. You walked into their house and you started playing things at them and your job or what I started to realize what was so important about this was I'm not there to impress these these animals I'm here to connect with them and through doing that oh I, I did it many many times I still play for animals actually just not as often that emphasis on the connection with your audience with these super honest animals that if they don't like it they're gonna literally run away put tuck their ears back like look at you like ah and some of them have done that <laughs> that really honest feedback was everything i needed to kind of get over the why am i doing this why am i getting on stage if i'm just beating myself up about this yes there are things i i get nervous about and now that i'm performing for humans a lot more again I, I still get jittery, but I don't get jittery in the same way of the total mind melt of everything could go wrong. Instead, you get jittery in this very kind of 
like you feel kind of alive almost like everything feels heightened, but nothing feels catastrophic. That was the big game changer to me. So what I would recommend and what I say to my students all the time is you need low stress performances. If that means that you just take your instrument down to the park and play while everybody else is, you know, on the swings and they don't know why you're there and you're just playing in the background, go do that. If it means going to the farmer's market and playing there, if it means playing for your family or stuffed animals or whatever feels like a very low stress experience, do that over and over again. But the the challenge I think is really, how do you get from the analytical mind to the, to just the effort mind? when when you're changing situations and environments that's great that's so cool i wanted to ask you a little bit about playing for animals because i saw that you did it and i knew you liked horses but i didn't know the context but that makes a lot of sense to me i think a lot of the issue can be we we do lose touch with like why are we playing in the first place it's hard when you're when I was in college and all of a sudden you have this precipice of I'm going to graduate, I'm going to have student loans, I have to support myself with this, or you know, even being a professional and wondering how am I going to get gigs versus being a little kid who decided, oh, I want to be a musician because I really love this and I really connect. And there can be a huge gap between those two when you're so stuck in that analytical mind. So anything, that's a really great piece of advice, whether it's animals or you know, old folks home or, or not, like you said, nothing like your stuffed animals, a park or whatever, just performing more and connecting with that. It's interesting too. You talked about moving from one state of mind to the other. This is something that I help people with in fitness. It's not an exact analogy, but I was on the phone with an old classmate of mine who's now a professional musician. Uh, I think he's finishing up his doctorate as well. And he was talking to me about the gym and how he was having a really hard time get because he was stuck in his head worrying about activating certain muscles and like making sure he's totally quote unquote safe and doing everything correctly to the point where he wasn't feeling good in the gym and his workouts were sucking and I explained to him this concept of moving from like an internal focus to an external focus or an using an internal cue which is in your head you're like okay I'm going to feel my lats or I'm going to feel my quads you're focused so much on like a specific body part you know the practice room it might be oh I'm going to play this particular phrase a certain way or I'm going to really nail with my metronome whatever And then moving to more of a performance cue, which is what a professional athlete would be doing in a game, for example, they're absolutely not thinking, okay, I'm going to flex my quad, I'm going to feel this, they're thinking like, throw hard, jump high, it's it's something that takes you out of your head and into the real world. And it's very similar when you step on stage, I feel like you can't be thinking about those technical details. I mean, hopefully you've done the preparation that you don't need to, but if you're thinking about that, you're like always going to get really stuck in the weeds, I feel like. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And I think we forget that we analyze so that we can perform at our highest level. If we get stuck in the analysis, like I I remember taking so many orchestra auditions where I was just so, I felt like I was in a straight jacket because I was trying to keep track of all the like, oh, I got to make sure that I'm in this part of the bow and then I do this thing. And like everything was just like these tiny little like data points on a spreadsheet that I was trying to perform. But my most successful auditions were the ones where I was playing like a musician, you know, like that you could let go of that mindset and just be like, oh, this phrase goes here. And this is the this is the top of it. And all of the analysis of how you get to the top of the phrase fed the performance of it later. So today, I'm curious, do you have any practices personally, aside from occasionally playing for animals that help you work through that anxiety, for lack of a better word, or being stuck in the analytical brain? Yeah, well, so it's interesting being a musician in LA, because there's a lot of recording work you do. And putting a microphone in front of myself used to bring me a lot of fear as well. It was funny, because you'd be like, not in a live performance. But as soon as that light went on, you were like, (laughs) and you'd like freak out and freeze up and I just remember being like this is so hard this is so hard you have to do it the first time and and that has definitely gotten better as well thank goodness but I would say that recording myself regularly 
has, has helped that a lot. And last year I was so nervous to do this. I did the hundred days of practice with Hillary Hahn. She always starts on January 1st, then she goes for a hundred days. And I just love her. I love her too. (laughs) She's great. I like fangirl about her so hard, but I love that she pulls back the curtain. It's not just a performance on the internet of like this amazing final product. It's like her warming up before a, a performance or this or that. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I can give people like a glimpse. I don't really care about the outcome. I'm not trying to go viral. You know, like there's no ego attachment to it other than just showing up every day. And I remember probably the first third of that challenge, I was like, oh no, like there are violin players that I totally respect and admire who follow me on Instagram and I'm just going to be so embarrassed and they're going to judge me so hard and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, by day 50, you're like, well, I have to get it done. Here it is. Oh, that's not perfect. Oh, well, like I'm not going to do it again. (laughs) So that helped a lot. Recording myself, watching myself, listening to myself helped so much. And the other thing that really helped was knowing that at every level, people who are the most elite, they still beat themselves up. They still look at how they play and they see problems and issues. They're like, Ooh, I didn't play that right. Or, and you, and you look at them like, are you crazy? And then you realize, Oh, we're all doing that to ourselves. Yeah. That's so important. And that's something I wish that I like really more, almost more than anything else, more than like the health and anatomy and like training and the the outcome of all that. I wish that I had known that everybody struggles with that stuff because I really felt like I was the only one. Yes, me too. And I was in a studio that was not, it was a very excellent studio and it was competitive in a sense, but it certainly wasn't cutthroat the way that a lot of studios are. But I still felt like I was the only person struggling that everybody else had it together. Everybody else knew what they were doing. They all had great practice sessions. And I feel like it's really helpful, especially for older people or people in teaching roles to normalize that for people, because I feel like there are probably a lot of students that are really struggling, partially because they're young and they don't have life experience or context. But it's so helpful to know that it's something that you are going to continue to deal with and you're not alone and you're not broken or the only one who's struggling with that stuff. Right. Exactly. And I think that there was a trend. I kind of know there was a trend, but I don't, I wouldn't know where to cite the source that there was a trend in teaching that you don't tell your students about your failures. You want them to aspire to your greatness Therefore, you illuminate and highlight the your successes and you don't you don't admit to your weaknesses and failures. I feel like that is really problematic. <laughs> That's me too. And it's definitely an older generation that did this. I was probably the generation before myself, I would say, that really did it. Because, you know, you didn't have the internet where people were just sitting there being like, true confessions, this is what my practice session looked like. And I remember my teacher in undergrad, who I love so much, she was such an amazing influence on me. She helped me, you know, really just dial in what a good practice session could be and how to be productive and blah, blah, blah. But she was a double major at Curtis when she's old now. She's like in her 80s, but double major at Curtis. And you would only hear about these amazing things that had happened in her career. And I was like, I'll never be like that. And then one day in a lesson, I like went in, I had practiced so hard. I think, I don't remember what I was doing, but some technique that I just like could not do. And I went in and I was like, I tried all week and I just can't do it. And, and I was like on the brink of crying. And she said, you know, when I was 18 or whatever, and she told me the story about how she had struggled with the same thing. And I remember looking at her being like, (gasps) Like it was such a relief, but I know she didn't do that for all of her students. Like, I think I was the only one who got a true confessions out of my year, you know? And I remember that just made me feel so hopeful. Like, oh, she wasn't perfect this whole time too. Okay. I can do it. I can do it. I'll go back. I'll, I'll work some more, you know? I definitely had a mix of teachers, some who were more like that and some who were a lot less like that. But I do think that at least for if you're a teacher that works with a lot of different types of students, different personalities, maybe not everybody needs that. But some, if some of your students do need that, I feel like it's 
in your best interest as a teacher to foster growth in your students to be able to share that experience with people instead of keeping the wall up. I want to shift gears a little bit because I know a lot of the conversation about exercising musicians is centered around like pain and injuries. And I know that you guys at Corsinor and, and I'm sure in your own career as well have done a lot of work and thought about this a lot. So I'm curious, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about injuries with musicians? And, and then I want to get into like, how does training fit into that, what it can do and what it can't do? Because I think sometimes people are saying things maybe a little bit too big of a promise of what is actually going on in relationship between the two. Yeah. So injury is a, tr it's a really tricky and emotional conversation that is not a one, a one fix cure. Oftentimes when for a little bit of context, I'm a Tamani teacher. Tamani comes from Norway and it takes a very, anatomical and very in-depth approach to how musicians use our body. And many times when I'm working with, I work a lot with professional musicians who have kind of reached a point in their discomfort or with their pain or their injury that they are frustrated with the tools that they have access to and are looking for a different perspective on how to get back on the, the wagon. And what you start to notice is that injury becomes such an emotional experience that many times the place where you should you should or can start is with letting somebody unburden themselves of the experience of feeling the way they feel and i i truly believe that we will all go through a music career at some point feeling discomfort maybe borderline injury, depending on how you define that. And it's not a bad thing. It's not, you didn't fail. It's not, it, it's not an indicator of your worth as a musician. And that's where I think that the, the rhetoric around talking about injury doesn't serve us very well. We talk about it like you failed. And then nobody knows how to get back up from that. And injury is, is a really deeply personal experience that people need the room to accept it. They need to feel confident expressing how they feel about their, their literally how they feel. And then they need to have the right tools and confidence to move forward. And the other thing that tends to happen or people don't quite understand is that a journey back to health or a journey forward out of a tricky situation isn't always comfortable. When you are recovering from or changing the way you do something, it's not a spa day. On an emotional level, on a physical level, you're, you have to retrain in a, in, in a way that is out of your comfort zone because it's out of your habits. Your habits have caused a kink <laughs> in, in how you're presenting into the world. And, and it's not aligning with what you want to do and who you are. And so the path out will be a little uncomfortable and people get scared about that. They reach a point where maybe they do an exercise and they, they feel it. Like maybe, maybe they have an issue in their hand and you start to really build up the hypothenar muscles, the muscles of the pinky, and they start to really feel that. And they go, oh no, oh no, oh no. That means I'm hurting myself. But if you think about the experience of building the muscles in the biceps, it hurts. It's not like you go to the gym and you like do a bunch of reps and you're like, I feel, I feel great. I feel like I just got a massage. No, you, you are in discomfort and you know that discomfort is building you towards something greater something bigger in your vision you wake up the next morning and you are like what did I do to my arms but you know you it's like that type of quote-unquote pain is in service of something greater I'm not saying we're going to work out your pinky finger to the point of exhaustion like your bicep that's not what I'm saying but sometimes when we think about healing we think about this very soft touch approach and healing healing and improving and recovering from injury is not most likely it's not going to be the spa day road 
Yeah. If I recall correctly, when you guys presented this summer, wasn't your presentation on the biopsychosocial model? Yeah. So this is such an important concept. Our lens is so biased towards the the bio part, towards the physical part, and especially when it comes to either like chronic pain or some sort of an injury. And especially, especially when it's for a musician where the injury might be threatening their livelihood and their identity, there's such an emotional and psychological component. And I love that you said that just giving someone the space to talk about it, if, if that's all they have, or if the person has the resources to go speak with a therapist or something like that, that is such an important part of the process. I love also that you you reframed it as you didn't fail and that honestly a lot of people will experience discomfort even if it's not major i mean that is true for life in general this is something that i see also in the gym with people who aren't necessarily musicians as well as musicians people expect that if they do certain things and a lot of times we've told them this through our marketing that they will never get injured they'll never slip and fall or if they eat a certain way they're never going to get chronic disease or something like that we can take a lot of steps to make ourselves more resilient and to reduce the risk potentially but we can't control everything i mean humans are we are a complex machine (laughs) for lack of a word complex system that's what the word i'm thinking of and there's a lot of pieces so you shouldn't beat yourself up if something happens because something is probably going to happen to all of us. And obviously some injuries, especially from a musician's perspective, are more catastrophic, more upsetting than others. But it's not that you are a failure and you failed as a musician, your technique sucked, right. or your approach sucked or something like that. Like it's just a part of being a human. And so taking this more like I think of it as like a client-centered approach. Thinking of yourself or the person that you're speaking to, if you're like a teacher or a helper as like an actual human being with emotions and thoughts and like a life is so important to help people move forward. Yes. I will add one thing to this. Sometimes we feel the, the quote unquote injury or discomfort manifest with our instrument, but it might not be because of our yeah. instrument. And this one people get tripped up about. And what I'm going to give you as an example, I'll use myself as an example because I'm good at this. If you're texting a lot on your phone, if you're on your phone and you are aggravating these muscles of your hands with all of these little motions, and then you pick up your instrument and start to do all of these crazy movements with your hands for a violin player, especially, you'll start to feel the fatigue and the habits and movement patterns of your texting life on your instrument and you'll go, oh no, I'm injured. I played too much. I blah, 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 blah. But maybe you only played an hour, but you texted for seven hours. It's, it's kind of like we, we associate injury immediately with the instrument, but you also have to look at the whole lifestyle of what people are doing. And you're like, Ooh, did you just apply your injury to your instrument or did you actually get injured playing your instrument? Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, I remembered also something I wanted to add on what you said before, but that's why when I, so I don't like to, when I work with clients, make people afraid of training because I actually think not training is more dangerous. However, I sometimes have to have a conversation with people about risk versus reward. So you're a professional musician who needs your shoulders to be functioning well to play your instrument, perhaps pursuing CrossFit or Olympic lifting or some sort of really technical sport is maybe not in your best interest. Now, of course, some people do do that stuff, especially people that have always been athletic and have like the skills built up. But And a baseline. Yeah, yeah. but you know, you, you should consider the entirety of your active life and consider whether certain types of activities might make less sense for you as a musician yes. than others. It doesn't mean, again, that those things are inherently bad, but there's always mm-hmm. like a calculation. So the thing I really like that you said that this is what I wanted to go back to is about how healing takes some effort. Mm-hmm. As someone who's gone through physical therapy a couple of times, I I know exactly what this means. One time I broke my wrist skiing. Actually, I was still in school. It was pretty terrible because I couldn't trombone. It was my trombone holding hand. So I couldn't hold my trombone at all for a long time. And I had to get a special exemption not to be in ensembles for that quarter. But anyways, when I was going through physical therapy, like it was really hard and like stuff hurt. I mean, when you use your hands all the time, you really take for granted that you can like, you know, do stuff like this, touching your 
fingers to your palm, grabbing onto stuff. It feels really challenging, but you won't take that next step forward without the challenge. And that is one reason of many why doing strength training and regular challenging training is beneficial because you understand, like you said, you have context for, okay, if I want to get stronger, if I want to change my body in some way, like I have to get into that uncomfortable zone. Does it mean that I'm always going to be physically comfortable when everything is good? Like sometimes we have to push into that zone and then rest and recover. Without that, we're not going to get better. So I think already having some of that context or that understanding is going to help people a lot. Absolutely. And I think that, when, well, when I wrote my dissertation, the, the thing that came up over and over and over again in the research was that core strength, core strength and stability is the number one thing you can do to avoid injury as a string player, or upper, I should say upper string player. That's fascinating. It, right? I truly thought it was, when I went into writing that, I truly thought it was like shoulder stretches or something, but it came up over and over again, core strength is the number one thing you can do. Core strength, you can't just lay around all day and get strong. You have to strengthen. Strengthen, you have to build those muscles. I mean, the whole process of building this musculature away from an instrument makes a little bit more sense because I think, I think I'm not an expert in this like you are. When you're doing physical training, you're working to a fatigue level or to a to fail or whatever you call it, where you get that shaky thing, <laughs> the shaky thing that I really don't like, but I, I do it. Cause I know it's good for me that, that type of building your just general physique. I'm not saying everybody has to be a weightlifter or a bodybuilder to be an amazing musician, but that little, even that little bit of extra strength you're adding to your kind of core body can go so far in mitigating symptoms or discomfort, even out further into your limbs. Yeah. It's so helpful, I think, to think about different physical qualities for a musician. I like to, for me, it's personally helpful to think about an ancient human, basically, and what their life was like, because that's basically the body that we inherited to some extent. So people didn't used to go to the gym and lift weights, but they were carrying their kids, they were carrying everything they owned, they were traveling, walking, lifting, building, like they were a lot more active during the day. And so just like to be a human being, but is you're a human being before you're a musician, there's physical qualities that you need to feel your best. And one of those is a certain level of strength. It absolutely does not mean that you have to be like a really jacked looking, you know, whatever. I think that that pushes people away, but, you know, without a certain level of strength and also without a certain level of cardio fitness, because that goes along too, like your brain isn't going to function that well, your joints are going to be unhappy. Like, so building stuff away from the instrument then just means that you as a blank slate human, for lack of a better way of putting it, you're going to be feeling better. And then you can bring all of your creative energy and everything to music. And you're not going to be like I was before I got active and like, oh, I can't sit in this rehearsal because my low back is going to kill me. Or like, I can't practice as I want because I'm always falling asleep <laughs> or like my elbow hurts, you know, those were things that for me were fixed when I just started doing like some basic maintenance of getting stronger and getting a little bit more fit. Right. And I think that what you're, what you're saying, like, is exactly what we at Corsinor myself definitely aligns with is that we want to remove those barriers from your excellence. And sometimes we are our own biggest barriers. And once, once you've set yourself up for greatness, it can be some really simple fixes, like a walk, a 30 minute walk. If you're not a person who's very active, switching a your frappuccino to something with less sugar in the morning. Like, I don't know. These little switches can, they, they're just like these baby steps in the right direction for you to, to just feel your best and ultimately do your best. And it, it's, it's fairly simple, but it, it really is exciting when, when you start to step on that path and feel your, your body working for you, your mind working for you. That's when, I mean, those are the days when I'm like, I'm invincible, like can't hold me back. Like I really feel like I'm made of magic when everything's kind of lined up to support what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. You just use so many great phrases. I like the removing barriers to your excellence yeah. because you, I mean, it, it sucks if you are 
gifted musician you have a lot to offer you want to create a lot of good work but like you're tired like all the things that i mentioned and that you mentioned that are holding you back physically like if you can remove those barriers then you can be your excellent self i love that so that is kind of a transition to something i wanted to talk to you about which is basically like i want to dig more into like you personally here like i want to know because i okay ready <laughs> from <laughs> listening to past episodes of your podcast and stuff i know you've had some evolutions in your own movement practice and i know you recently dealt with well not i mean it was a lengthy um health issue that you were dealing with but you recently shared about that and i'm just curious like you today in 2023 like what are the practices it could be movement um i know nutrition's a big part you know other things that you do on a daily or weekly basis so that you can feel your physical best like what does that look like for you right now so i i don't know why in my life i've been resistant to supplements I didn't like to take them. Actually, I know why, because some supplements and some vitamins make me feel very nauseous. I don't know what it is. Maybe it was the brand. I don't know. Maybe it was the dose of them. I'm not sure. They would make me feel really nauseous. And I was like, I'm just not a girl who can take supplements. I was so anemic a couple of years ago. Like if bad, if bad iron levels were like right here, I was way below that. And they were like, how are you like walking around? And are you exhausted all the time? And I was like, I mean, I'm a little tired, but I don't know. Like I was just so used to that as my normal life that I, and iron is a hard supplement to take that actually had, that was a real learning curve for me because if you just take iron, it constipates you really badly. So you have to find a type that really works in your system. And you also have to supplement around it. Otherwise you can't absorb it. All that to say, that took me on a supplement journey of like, what really works in my body? Where are my weak spots? And where do I need a little extra help that I'm not getting from my diet? So supplements recently have become a huge thing for me. Um, I take magnesium every day. And I swear, I'm not a I'm not a medical doctor, but I think we could all benefit from some good magnesium in our diets. That's definitely one that if I were to make supplement recommendations that I would probably make for a lot of people, for sure. Yes. I mean, it affects my sleep. It affects my digestion, my stress, my perception of my stress, my bowel movement, like the whole nine yards. It even affects how you absorb other nutrients. So supplements have definitely become a very important role in what I do every day. The other thing that I've started, not started, but have become really invested in is understanding the cycles of the day and how your body can work with them. And by that, I mean, naturally, when you wake up in the morning, your stress levels spike. It's like part of your body waking up to the day is like, you got to get a little stressed out. So you get out of bed. And so your cortisol will kind of spark in the morning, but you don't want to just like run off into your busy day and be stressed out and kind of like lean into that experience. You, you want to really use it for good <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it. So in the morning, I start my day with like 10 to 15 minutes of really gentle movement. Like for me, I, I lean back into yoga because I have a big, big past, but a lot of experience with a yoga practice. So I do a little bit of yoga and meditation in the morning before I have any coffee, which spikes your cortisol even more. And then at the end of the day, your melatonin levels are supposed to kick in. And that is what alleviates or balances out your cortisol stress levels. For musicians, this is really hard because we're often going to work right when our melatonin is supposed to kick in and calm us down and make us go to bed. So I have some practices at night that like I take magnesium at night before I go to bed. I often will take a hot shower and read a book. I don't have my phone in bed, like these kind of like power down types of habits have really become the cornerstones of how I live my life. And then anything else I have in you know, like, of course I practice and I work out on top of a little bit of movement in the morning, but those are kind of a, the pillars. Like I have my morning and my night and then some supplements throughout the day. And I feel like I'm made of magic. <laughs> the great thing about that is you didn't list 10 million things that you do. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I'm not that person. <laughs> like there are a lot of things that you could do in any of these domains to feel good. I think that you probably have a lot of practice identifying what works for you. And 
you I, I like to think of it as you have sort of like you have these like essential maybe practices a few things that you know that you really need to do to feel best your best and then there's maybe other stuff that you would do on top of that and i feel like if we can focus on and identify on what the most important things are it takes some of the pressure off and it just gives us like a good baseline to uh, run with i like to what you said about the cycles i think that if you are a musician who has more control over your schedule during the day or or even at any point really i think that that you can use that to your advantage and you can take the time to learn like when am i most focused like maybe for some people that might be first thing when they wake up other people it might be later in the day but but scheduling like high mental intensity work during that time whether that's practice session or creating something and then those times of day when you are conking out which is normal by the way no i think we have this expectation that we're going to have steady high energy all day and that's not actually the way that we're wired most people are probably going to feel like a lull in the afternoon this is why a lot of cultures take like a siesta which i think we should definitely have (laughs) me too (laughs) you know if you can try not to put like your peak practice session or stuff during those times or maybe that's a time when you do like a workout because then you can kind of recharge a little bit. Like if you can, if you have the flexibility and I know not everybody does to think about stuff, that's one advantage potentially of having this more of like a freelance lifestyle if that's what you have. And you can use that to feel your best and then bring like your best self to the work. And if you don't, everybody pretty much can have some type of a morning or evening routine like you do, which I really like. Yeah, and I will say I had to train, you know, your nights affect your mornings. That was a hard lesson for me to learn because if you are like, oh, I'm going to start my morning routine tomorrow at 6 a.m. and you go to bed at midnight, you are setting yourself up for failure. So like for me, that's why it's so important to connect the ends and the beginnings of my day is because they affect each other so much that I really was like, oh, I do need to wake up at 6 30 tomorrow which means I gotta go to bed at you know and you kind of like walk back and you're like okay I gotta be in bed by like 9 30 then so um and obviously with five performances or whatever that those time those schedules get knocked around quite a bit but I try at least to keep these building blocks in place that when I wake up it looks like this regardless of the time and when I go to bed it looks like this regardless of the time one thing that I found is helpful too, is to think about sometimes from the other direction, because sometimes I'll have people say, oh, I can't go to bed at night. I'm too wired. So I can't get up in the morning. And I found that if you make yourself get up early and you do a workout that day, you're going to be more tired in the evening. As long as you then honor it, that you can, at least for a lot of people, somewhat shift your day earlier. Now you're not going to change your natural tendency a huge amount but that doesn't mean you can't shift it so that you can get up a little bit earlier and take care of some of those things definitely and a nice shock to the system sometimes by like oh I did not get a lot of sleep last night and here I go can sometimes just like push you into a better habit when you're like you'll definitely be more tired the following night and less likely to be on your phone (laughs) yes definitely (laughs) so I'm curious like if based on your experiences over the last years and through COVID, because I know a lot of had a lot of self-care challenges, like have you changed? Because um, I know you started Corsinor before the pandemic. So has, have the recent experiences that you've had changed the way that you think about like wellness for musicians and how you communicate or try to help people improve that for themselves? That's a great question. Well, I definitely, my own habits definitely switched into I do a lot more of my self-care at home and that has been a habit that's actually been hard I I like it actually since COVID that I am finding resources and creating resources that I can do on my own here without having to leave my house which now that we're you know 2023 I'm kind of like oh Hannah you should probably go out and like socialize and you know like do this as part of a group somewhere else but there are things about it that I really enjoy doing at home, which is why Corsinor has a movement um, component to our platform where you can join us for virtual classes. If that fits in with your schedule, we have on-demand classes as well that you can take at any time, simply because I've definitely noticed that I, if I want to go to a yoga class and I'm scrolling through all the yoga studios in LA sometimes they just don't fit my schedule. Like I I can't go to yoga at five o'clock 
and then get to my rehearsal on time. It just doesn't work. Or if I want to go, you know, I, I have an hour to work out, but it's going to take me 15 minutes to get to the gym and 15 minutes to get home. And, or sometimes for me, I like, I used to swim. Madeline actually is an amazing swimmer. She, ha- I swear she has gills. I swear she has gills. And she and I actually used to really bond in college over swimming together. We have this amazing swim coach, but swimming is really hard if you're trying to do it in between music things with a violin. Cause I can't take my violin into the chlorine area. I'm not going to leave it in a locker room. That's insane. So there, and you have to like shower. Yeah. Right. right. And then I got goggle eyes all day, you know? So it's like, it, you have to be a little strategic about doing that stuff. So the, the emphasis on how I can take care of myself at home has really amplified through, through the pandemic and definitely influences how I live my life now. Yeah. I found that because I work with a lot of musicians with my one-on-one coaching and I feel like it's, it can be helpful for that kind of lifestyle because you don't have to do, like you said, scrolling. You just have somebody that you're working with that's telling you what. And also a lot of them do work out at home. Now, Sometimes they've gotten a little bored with working out at home and then we have to have the conversation of, okay, if you want to go to a gym, like we just have to make it work logistically. But if we're looking purely from like an ease perspective, I feel like the ability to do more stuff at home, if that's, especially if that's where you're like practicing and working, it makes it a lot more likely that you're actually going to follow through. So even having like a few small pieces of equipment, like you don't need to build a $3,000 home gym. (laughs) Right. People who live in an apartment can't even do that, but you can buy some really small equipment and have a really effective workout and learning how to use it. It's just going to make it a lot more, a lot more likely that it gets done. So I feel like you're hundred percent not alone feeling that way. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we are coming close to an hour. So I want to give you an opportunity to share like where people can find more about, of course, Nora and you and whatnot. But I want to selfishly ask you first about reading because I'm also big reader maybe not as big as you I have some years where I read a lot and some years that I don't and I know you you read a lot so I'm just curious like how do you find time make time I mean I'm saying this knowing that a lot of people who read a lot have been doing it their whole lives and so that probably helps but I'm curious like how you fit that in and then also like how do you decide what books you read like how do you find new books that those are some of my favorite questions so I would say I've always loved to read but there have been phases in my life where I haven't read as much and so I love Goodre- Goodreads is probably my favorite social media platform. I'll have to find you <laughs> on there because I'm on there too. <laughs> and then you'll be like, you do read a lot of weird stuff. So I definitely am really active on, on Goodreads. I'm like cheering everybody on with their updates on their books. It's like, I love it. So when I first started like setting reading goals for myself, I think it was probably, let's see, it might've been about eight years ago. I would set... I think my goal was two books a month. So that's 24 books in a year. And I was like, I can do that. And I had an Audible account. I was like driving quite a bit. So that really helped. I, I definitely count my audio books as well. And I think I like beat my record. I got like 27. I was like, oh, I'm amazing. And then I was like, maybe I can do more. And so I pushed it. Every year I kind of pushed it. And over in 2020, we were going on these real, me and my fiance were going on these really long walks at the end of the day, like two, two and a half hours. They were amazing. It was like my favorite part of COVID, to be honest, because LA was totally shut down. You could walk through these amazing neighborhoods. There were no cars. It was just, it was just beautiful. And so I would listen to so many books. I think I, I read that year, like 70 books. And I was like, I'm a beast. Well, I couldn't keep that up. <laughs> I couldn't keep that up, but I do set a a number with my grandmother every year. We kind of both agree on a number, like how many are you going to read? And then we'll periodically write each other letters and kind of summarize our books of like, which ones were our favorites, which really helped. I'm always trying to build my skills and knowledge in places where I feel like they're just weak spots for me. So a lot of business books recently because of building Corsinor a lot of finance books because ha 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 didn't get that in college <laughs> a lot of anatomy books because i'm pretty obsessed with it and it really helps to keep up to date with all of that but i also really love fiction and i and i truly feel like every artist should read fiction because we're all kind of storytellers on our instruments so i 
I'm always reading a couple books at a time. And I think that's how I read as much as I do in a year. I've got one on my audio book. I've got one by my bed. I've got one that I read for, I actually ha- always keep a book on my phone for recording gigs so that um, my phone's not dinging when they're, when we're in the, like the trombones are recording and the strings have to be quiet. I always have a book that I'm kind of reading for that part. So yeah, I just basically keep a book everywhere I can find one. Plus that scene in Beauty and the Beast, when she walks into the library at the Beast's castle was like, I think, I think I watched that movie too much as a kid. And I was like, the cool girl's the nerd, the cool girl who gets the prince. She's the bookworm. Like that just, that just sat with me so hard. So I've always aspired to live in a library, um, which helps. (laughs) That is a great scene in one of the best Disney movies. So. Yeah, I love that. That's similar to me. I mean, I was a big reader as a kid. And then when I was in college, uh, in addition to music, I did a, it's a really long story, but I didn't have to take any gen eds. And um, because of AP tests, I had an unusual situation. So I just took all those extra classes. I did a history major. Cool. Um, I had to read a lot for that, of course. And so I didn't do a lot of reading for fun, basically the whole time I was in college. And then when I got out of college, I was like, why am I not doing this? Like, I really miss this. And so like you, I started with a really small goal and then I beat it. And then the the issue is like, it becomes... It becomes kind of competitive, like yes. I want to read more and more. But then, if you want to read a book that takes a lot of time to read, for example, like a long fiction book or a nonfiction book that like is a slow read, mm-hmm. um, it like messes with your numbers. Oh yeah, I've had to be a little more like realistic with my goal, or or not hold myself to it so much because I want to read them. You know, the, the oh, books I have run read. into this. I have some big fat fiction books that have sat for years on my shelf and I'm like, I just can't. My, my goal is too high this yeah, year. I'm on a like, schedule. <laughs> that's not going to work. But some, so I, I also have a book club, um, which is open to anybody. There are people in that book club who aren't musicians. There's musicians. It's like, it's a really wonderful, very open place. And everybody's allowed to recommend books. And some of the things that people have said, like, let's read this. I've been like, I have zero desire to do that, but I read it and I learned so much or it's, you know, totally something that I would have never picked out, but it was, it was really awesome. And some of the books people pick are really long. And so, okay, I'm going to tell you my secret. Sometimes I have the book and the audio version and I double time it. So I'll listen. Before, yeah, <laughs> I feel like a cheater when I do that, but gotta get the job I think done. audiobooks still count for <laughs> sure. So one last question on this. You can think just back to 2022. You don't have to think like of all time, but what was maybe like one of the best nonfiction and the best fiction books that you read recently? Ooh, um, let's see. Well, let me pull up my Goodreads. Yeah, you can pull it up. <laughs> <It's not cheating. laughs> Um, I definitely started 2022 reading this amazing book called Severance, um, which is, it's like a pandemic book. I didn't mean it to be like, oh, I'm going to read about a pandemic, but it was amazing. It was a really, really good, good read. Good read. Ha ha ha. Um, that one was fabulous. That's a fiction book? Yeah by Ling Ma I think her name is the one that I would say though for musicians for anybody really but this one was so it just hit all the right sweet spots for me was every good boy does fine a love story in music lessons by Jeremy Dank oh that's uh, a cute title <laughs> oh my god it's and he it's like a he talks about all of his piano teachers through his career and then he reflects on some of the most important and inspirational music that he's ever played and it's just I laughed out loud reading this book, but it's also so tender. It's just, it was beautiful on it's nonfiction, but it's totally, you just read it like a, like a cozy corner. It's so good. Okay. I love that. I'll definitely check that one out. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been really fun. Thank you for yeah, taking my pleasure. the time. So before we um, sign off, just let us know. I mean, first of all, if there's anything um, that you are like a project or something that you and Corsonora or yourself are launching and you want to let people know about. Otherwise, just in general, where can people connect with you and find more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, so you can find Corsonora on Inst. We're most active on Instagram. If you're a LinkedIn person, we're on there too. I Technically, we have a Facebook page, but like no comment on that. <laughs> 
So it's at C-O-R-P-S-O-N-O-R-E, Corp Sonore. You can find us there. You can kind of see some of the updates on different movement classes and articles and podcast guests. And then we also have a newsletter that we send out. So if you join our email list, you can find that on our website. If you want some nutrition hacks, we've got some really good ones that you can find, which I can't believe I'm, I'm like, just go to the link in our bio on Instagram. Cause I've blanked on the, on the link for that. Um, and then myself personally, I'm at active violinist. I mostly over there talk about violining things and playing for animals and random things about being a musician. <laughs> Awesome. And I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes for people as well so they can know how to spell everything uh, correctly there. Amazing. Great. Well, thank you, Hannah, so much for being on the show. Thank thank you, everybody listening. And I will see you on the next episode. This is my pleasure. Thank you for the invite. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Building Stronger Creatives. If something you heard resonated with you, I would love for you to share this episode with someone else who might enjoy it. I also always appreciate comments, ratings, and reviews. These things help me get the word out to other creatives who could benefit from this type of information. See you back on the next episode. Until then, stay curious, stay passionate, and stay strong.